actually, I probably should have got myself a right-hand business mentor from day one that understood small business. And look, I had a lot of people that work for major companies helping me, but actually starting your company is so different from being in a company. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Today's guest is an absolute pocket rocket. Her name is Warby Webster and she is a talented musician who started her career at Oxford University in the Royal College of Music in London before being swept up into a world first electric string quartet group uh, called Bond, which has gone multi-times platinum around the world. She's worked at high levels of corporate, she's uh, competed uh, at a high level in the sport of rowing. But what we've really focused our conversation on today is this bold plan that Borby hatched a few years ago with some fellow musicians to launch the Perth Symphony Orchestra, literally start an orchestra from scratch, and in doing so, challenged the conventional way that people looked at the world of orchestra and classical music, putting on performances like Beer, Beethoven and Bratwurst, and challenging the way that we looked at the world of music and the way in which music could be brought to a community and to an audience. It's a really inspiring chat about the entrepreneurial creative journey that she's been on, the lessons that she's learnt, and it's an absolute must listen for anyone who's thinking about starting their idea and for any of you that are thinking about the role that your creative aspirations and your creative expression might play in your career. Without further ado, here's Bobby. And one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is because I really think to this point we haven't tapped into creativity in the arts in general as a sector, but also in terms of the the role that plays and should play in every other facet of our lives, in corporate life, you name it. I, I think it's kind totally. of unfortunately totally. all too far off to the side. And, and I want to, particularly I think with your diverse background of you know, the commercial roles that you've had, the elite sporting career, and obviously the, the professional musical life, firstly as a performer and now um, certainly well and truly with, with what you're leading in Perth, um, really trying to unlock the lessons that are in that, not just for the creative sector, but for others more broadly. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I wish I'd known. Like, it's interesting, Holly, I might even end up going back into the corporate world at some point because I so feel that the journey of the orchestra, I would be a completely different business leader. I would approach my job in the corporate world very differently. I'm interested. Explain. What, what, what would it be that's really like, – to say that so emphatically is is interesting. What is it that underpins that for you? Do you know that it's the ability to work with exceedingly diverse people So and actually how brilliant that's been. So the one thing that I felt I could get away with when recruiting, particularly on the admin side of the orchestra, clearly on the performing side of the orchestra, they've all got to play an instrument. But on the admin side, I was looking for people that just had passion and drive. And like, so I have the most diverse workforce possible. And yet that passion has led them to pick up skills. My my production manager can now talk to you about, you know, voltages and um, three-phase power of gensets like no one else. And yet she's a geologist. So I, you know, it's about finding, you know, to develop that culture, develop that commitment, develop that passion, which is 
I've just realised is beyond critical to have that unified vision. We're all on the same page. That actually, depending on how technical the role, um, but for more sort of broadly administrative roles, people can learn and finding the right skills, um, sorry, finding the right attitude and right passion has been so much more important than the right skills. And clearly you can see from resumes that people do have certain skill sets. But, um, you know, before it was like, well, I need a marketing job. So I've got to find someone with marketing experience. And actually now I'm like, actually, I've got to find someone that thinks differently, that can find, you know, understands how different groups think and act and is quite different from me to reach the groups that I don't know how to target. So it's it's really led me down a different path completely. And I'm like, God, I'd love to try this in the corporate world. <laughs> and I can imagine too, you know, one of the things I've always thought that sort of nonprofit organisations in the arts sector and a lot of those sort of passion-based vocations and pursuits where people get into it for pure love of the craft or belief in the benefit or uh, the want to see that impact spread and touch more lives is they've got that passion and connection in spades. And this is sort of a conversation the corporate world's come into in the last decade. And it's sort of news to everyone that it's important for people to feel a connection and a, a resonance with what it is they're doing every day. But I feel like that's something that, again, if we'd had more of that cross-pollination and sharing would have been a lesson that the arts and the, the charitable sector could have taught the corporate landscape a long time ago. Absolutely. And the one thing I say that our role is in creating an orchestra is connection to provide an opportunity for our musicians to connect with each other, to stay inspired and not cynical about, you know, being a musician, to connect with members of communities they'd never ordinarily meet and to connect community members to one another because it just bashes down you know, boundaries and demographics like you wouldn't believe. So connection is just such a key word at PSO all the time, Holly. I love that. And look, I've already jumped straight into it because I'm too excited and I've got too many things I want to talk to you about. But I feel like we need to give everyone a little bit of context, you know, to how this incredibly diverse career actually kicked off and and started. I'm, I'm interested as to sort of what the passion was when you were growing up and was was the aspiration to be a musician. Did you ever sort of see the diverse path that you've, you've led since I'm folding oh my gosh no I mean like when you're when you're a kid you just have fun doing stuff and for me music was just unbelievable so it was something I was good at it came naturally I seriously cannot tell you when I learned to read music I don't really remember I just grew up in a really musical household did you like were you just exposed to it from your parents and siblings I did yeah my parents are not musicians but they are incredible music lovers they both sang in choirs when they were younger my dad was a chorister um etc so my goodness me not remotely and they won't mind me saying this accomplished musicians but just inherently musical and love it they sang to me every night Mm. literally we had prayers at night time back then and you know mum and dad would we'd sing the prayer so um you know it was such a fundamental part of growing up but I didn't remotely at any point as a kid think of it as even a career or a profession it was just something that everyone did but you know I look back now and just realize how that and what happened in my village as a kid drove drove me to do everything I'm doing now so Mm. and tell me like growing up in that village is that really that community dynamic in the sort of experiences and opportunities you were exposed to Totally. So, you know, even from the youngest age, joining the choir as the youngest member, you know, that kind of thing. It was the way that you met the old people, you know, and we'd do productions in the village assembly room and the lady from the shop would be the person that made the tea and the dude from the garage would build the sets. And, you know, so that was how I met the village. That was how the village was the village. (laughs) And I, I really see now that it's so hard to meet people on the street where you live, let alone old people. You know, like how do we connect with different generations or different races or different nationalities or different 
different demographics in our community. But in that village, music was the one thing that did that all of the time. And so I've sort of always used music as a way to connect to people. I wanted to ask you about sort of the, the career path in the arts because I'm very fortunate to have a, a lot of creative friends and, and quite a common theme when you have conversations with people that have pursued music or acting or any of the, the real creative pursuits, painting, uh, sculpture, you name it, is that they're often told that there was a really difficult career path. You know, it's really hard to make a living. It's really hard to make it work. And I guess in the context of 2017, in some ways I look at that and go, well, isn't it an exciting time because you've probably never had greater opportunity to reach an audience and connect with people than you do right now. But to other degrees, you sort of read the conversations, and I guess this is particularly in the musical game where you watch sort of the battles that Taylor Swift's and, and the like are having with, you know, the the iTunes and the Spotify's and the the shrinking royalties that music producers are getting. And, and from that angle, I can see it's it's probably never been harder. What was What's your sort of take on, on driving a career in uh, in the creative fields. Look, it's really interesting because I'm not going to say it's come easy for me, but I don't think it's been any harder than any other industry for me. But um, I think that's just the way that my career's unfolded. And I'm definitely one of those people that the harder I work, the luckier I become. Yep. So opportunities um, have arisen. You have to forgive me, by the way, Perth Symphony Orchestra is based in a music department and you can probably hear some percussion. I feel like I can hear some drums in the background. Yeah, there's a rehearsal going on. Uh, do you yeah. know what? This happens all the time in, my, in our job. It could be out of tune clarinets or very loud saxophones. Um, well, that's we've got a good beat under the undertow of the interview, so it's all good. No clarinets. Everyone's yet. got a heartbeat while listening, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but actually, you're absolutely right. When it actually comes to independent performing artist musicians, I think it's incredibly challenging. And, uh, you know, even sort of going into music college, I didn't particularly want an orchestral career. But, you know, there was a huge number of jobs in orchestras coming out as a performer, mm. whereas I think that's less now. Um, and contemporary musicians, absolutely, if they're not commercially minded and understand their market and understand channels and how to communicate their music to the wide audience and use the internet, it's no longer someone is going to just stumble across you and um, pick you up. Having said that, I absolutely love the stories that emerge of someone who's played in their bedroom, uploaded something to YouTube, and yeah. it has gone off. So, you know, in some ways, you've got an immediate global audience which, you know, you had to be filtered by the record labels before. So, yeah, Holly, I think it's there Goodbye. are still some massive opportunities and I think it's incredibly exciting. It's it's probably very frustrating for people that have grown up with the old model because the change in the industry has happened so fast. Yeah. So to change with it, that's, that's going to be the key challenge for all of us. So for a young person who's looking at a career like yours and going, wow, you've performed at the absolute heights of your own instrument, you've established an orchestra, you've been able to make it work in so many different ways, what sort of advice? do you have for actually te- taking their say musical capability and applying it in a way that can achieve that sort of career path because my guess would be that that's not the sort of stuff that they teach you when you go do your music degree at Oxford not at all yeah not at all and it's which funny you did do by the way <laughs> I did do by the way and it doesn't prepare you for life as a musician at all it teaches so you about you music this is kind of the ongoing conversation <laughs> we're having at the moment isn't it? Look, I've learned literally on the job, excuse, excuse the kind of phrase, um, but it became blatantly obvious to me. And actually part of it was a massive learning curve. I came out of music college as an innocent viola player thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do with this. And um, I quite like organising things. And at Oxford, that is the most startlingly 
full university of music for a, a university that isn't known for a music program. It's an academic university. But academia, I think intelligence and music do go hand in hand. Um, mm. And so the the, uh, the university had 26 orchestras, um, but they were all self-organized. So, you know, I was part of a string quartet that we ran and managed ourselves and organized our own concerts. So, you know, I actually learned to create my own opportunities. And it's really fascinating now that as a result of that, and also when I did postgraduate at the Royal College of Music, I was still organizing my own things. Mm -hmm. So I literally realized if I wanted the career that I wanted, I was going to have to do it. And oddly enough, that is literally the foundation of the course that I now teach at the WA Academy of Performing Arts. Interesting. That I... I literally was saying, if musicians sit back and wait to pass an audition or wait for a record label to pick them up or wait for, you know, a series of international jazz festivals to book them, it's never going to happen. They have to create their own projects. Yep. So, you know, I'm absolutely pro talking to musicians as you are self-employed, mm. you are entrepreneurs, you are, you know, so rather than trying to persuade the music industry to slot them in, I'm like, no, go out there and create it create your new project, create your new festival, create your new ensemble. And the exciting Australia is there's so much opportunity to do that. And particularly here in Perth, you know, we, we've got so much room for capacity here that as long as musicians don't wait around for someone to give them a job, as long as they're creating their own projects, I think they can be successful. And I think that's a lesson for sort of everyone, not even just in the generation coming through, but sort of who are mid-career as things get increasingly less linear and sort of the world is much more a choose-your-own-adventure than it probably has ever been before. Um, that importance of being prepared to take the initiative, seize the opportunity, don't wait for it to fall in your lap. I mean, that that's broadly applicable to, to everyone that's out there trying to make it in whatever their field of endeavour is. Absolutely. I mean, even in my father's generation, you had a job for life. Yeah. So, you know, so you, it's literally the same as in music as an industry that you would literally hope you got a job that you were trained to do and then could stay in that company. Whereas increasingly now I see my friends, you know, if they're in a job and they can see an opportunity, will spin out of that firm and take advantage of that opportunity. And because they can connect, they don't need monstrous marketing budgets anymore mm. you know you don't need to be part of a huge firm with huge budgets you can be a much smaller person and build a really successful company um so i, I think it's just uh you know a fantastic time to be in the arts for that reason so help me chart the path from sort of being at oxford to now running your own orchestra in perth in western australia how did what were kind of the the major milestones and and the key directions i guess that you took decisions in to be able to arrive at this point <laughs> Oh my goodness me, talk about a uh, Helter Skelter and Zed Bend. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if people say, so what was your path to doing an orchestra? Mine's going to be pretty hard to, to replicate. But um, look, whilst at Music College, I auditioned for a, a, a band that eventually went on to be extremely successful. They were called Bond. It was an electric string quartet. Yeah, they're still going and multi-platinum selling band. And, you know, that was an extremely eye-opening time for me to go from the classical music industry that's hugely funded um, and very much, um, well, it was then reactive and traditional and all the rest of it, to then suddenly being in this groundbreaking band. You know, I mean, I had the world's first Yamaha electric viola made for me. Really? And um, it was, and I still have it. I still have it. It's actually not a viola, it's a violin. They strung it as a viola and said it's a, a viola, but that they were the world's first electric 
electric instruments that were sort of given to Bond. But to stand in front of an audience that's jumping up and down and punching the air was, you know, that just doesn't happen in concert halls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to imagine um, a mosh pit at a, at a classical uh, exactly. music conference. Ex- concert, well, sorry. if you'd seen the, if you'd seen Perth Symphony Orchestra play last Saturday in Quinano, we had just that. So I've, I've come a full circle. But there you go. back then, yeah, back then it was very much, uh, oh my goodness me, this is such a great feeling. Like imagine if we could get this kind of response to classical music. But also what was going on around me was that, you know, we were four musicians in a band surrounded by publicists, accountants, lawyers, tour managers, promoters, engineers, venues. And 99% of the people in the music industry are not musicians. So I was like, this is fascinating to be successful in music. You actually don't need to be a musician or actually most people aren't musicians. And that's the contemporary industry. Mm. And that made me, there were so many questions I had about, well, who's paying for this studio? Who's, why are we releasing this now? Whose decision is this? So that inspired me to go into the corporate world, um, do an MBA, okay. learn some hardcore business skills, because I literally went, I don't like being part of something that's being made successful without me having a faintest idea of how. Good on you. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I've been through a number of industries during my corporate career, but the last was um, head of business development for a global consulting engineering firm. And um, it was at that point on stage at Burswood Dome, which doesn't exist now, in 2007, and Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds was touring. And there were 48 string players on stage, which is, wow. by any standards, an insanely large string section. And, you know, a 50-metre-wide screen, and or I think it was 40 metres or something, but 11-piece rock band. I mean, this was the biggest production I had ever been a part of. And I sat there and thought, I wonder if I could do this. I wonder if I could create something that would just bring music to thousands of people using an orchestra. And maybe now's the time because I've got the skills. You know, if someone presents me with a two million contract, I'll question if that's enough money. Whereas in the old days, I would have gone two million. Yes, sign. That's amazing. (laughs) Straight in. So, yeah. So 2007 was quite a turning point for me when I've been in the corporate world now for eight, eight, nine years, worked my absolute bottom off to learn everything I could now's the time to go back into music so, so and then, many yeah questions. it was a long journey from then yep <laughs> about this but one I'm interested in and and you know my own journey I sort of came to the creative world a little bit later in life but it was through the encouragement of the the CEO I was working for at the time who was a huge passionate advocate of the arts and that's Sam Walsh when he was heading up Rio Tinto um, I'm interested yep. for your take on what business can learn from the creative uh, art sector and what it is that the arts can could better learn from business. Oh goodness me! Do you know this is so on point at the moment? Um, having I just did a, a trip to Dallas Opera at the invitation of the CEO Keith Cerny, and Keith has the same background as me. Started life as a, a concert pianist, though not a violist, and um, but then ended up jumping ship, working for McKinsey and Co, and has now gone back using those business skills into the art art world and it became so obvious to me how much the art sector benefits from people who have extremely strong commercial backgrounds and I sort of came back to Australia going what do I need to do to attract not just the best people in the arts industry but the best people full stop in Australia to consider careers in the arts because I think it would transform Australia for that for that reason having said that um, there is so much that creative and artistic people um, do and think so differently to people in 
um, my experience in the corporate world, where you're very much, you've done a degree in something and you specialize in that area and you increase your skills and all your professional development is in that area. Mm. Whereas working for an arts company, generally we're very under-resourced. And so what happens is, you know, from one minute you're um, helping set up a stage to the next minute undertaking a marketing campaign to then hosting sponsors to then everyone has to have quite a broad range of skills. And actually that everyone has a core skill, but they very much understand how it all links together. And that connectivity within the organization is hugely exciting and brings out amazing skills in people that often they don't even know they have until they start doing it. So I think, you know, that's a a very big lesson that the corporates can learn is to actually um, start inspiring people across departments and giving people opportunities to broaden their skills within companies and also introduce people from very diverse backgrounds. Mm, Which it sounds like, you know, as you were saying before, you're absolutely at the melting pot of at the moment. One of the things I wanted to pick up on there, that that piece around sort of the role of business in the arts, one of the things that I found interesting since getting the opportunity to to work with and be exposed to a a fair amount of the arts sector over the last five years is sort of this tension that seems to exist. And I'm not sure that it's unique to Australia, but I've certainly seen it here. We sort of seem to go... Uh, we, we flip in mindset or approach to it. You know, one period, uh, we're, it's very in vogue to have, you know, entirely business people on your board. You want a business person chairing it. You want the business person as sort of the, we need the arts people at the core of what they're doing because arguably sort of we've, we've lost the creative flair and the, the, the heart of what it is we were trying to create with this orchestra or um, gallery or whatever it might be. Yes, How do you kind absolutely. of see, like, what does is, what is the two working in harmony look like? Because it sort of seems seems like we flip-flop between one or the other and that's I imagine to the detriment um, of both it's sort of like you're not consistently sticking to a way of approaching things totally absolutely Uh, Holly it's a codependency like you can see arts organizations that have had the most inspirational arts leader and everyone follows them and it ends up the biggest financial mess ever because the vision has totally clouded any um, sense of you know sort of financial discipline for want of a better Mm -hmm. word Um, and then you get the other where then there's a knee-jerk reaction where they're like well we've got to clean up this mess and in comes someone to do some turnaround and you know that's part of what I was discussing with Keith in the, the US that many orchestras and opera companies have needed that turnaround. Um, And it's how to do that because if you then bring in a commercial person who absolutely kills the vibrancy and puts chains around. So it's an incredibly unique skill for a commercial person to be able to say, I've got to be able to make this a a success and a going concern whilst retaining the core vision and the core passion of the artistic thing. So actually, you know, to, to and I'm very fortunate in Perth Symphony. I mean, whilst I'm a creative, you know, I hope I'm a very um, commercially minded person, but I have Jessica Gethin as our artistic director and chief conductor. And we have very robust conversations, but there's a very big mutual respect between us. And that tension is fantastic. And I think is what has led Perth Symphony to be incredibly successful with no funding because we're constantly partnering the two of the artistic with the commercial. Mm. Now talk to me about that, starting something with no funding and, and building the journey that you've been on. I think I'm right that Perth Symphony Orchestra is 70% female and around about the same amount are under the age of 35. So you Correct. create this vision uh, and really a blank canvas saying this is what we think this world needs. How did you go about getting the support, building the audience, getting to the point where you are now where you've got, you know, an amazing turnout of people fist pumping in the air on the weekend at your most recent performance? (laughs) 
Look, I, I did it possibly in, in a way that most people I've spoken into the not-for-profit sector is like, why the hell did you choose that way? But because I'd spent <laughs> so much time in the because I'd spent so much time in the corporate world, I was like, it's almost, you know, if I build a product and show people how good it is, then they're gonna start going, we need to go and see that. Whereas generally in the not-for-profit world, you're like, I need to build a new hospital wing, let's start a fundraising campaign, and I won't build the wing until I've got the money in the bank. Yeah. You know, and that's the same model for generally all. Whereas I was like, no, 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 no. I have to find a way to put this on, persuade someone to work with me to put the orchestra on and then let the audience come and rave about it. And then I'll go out and speak to people to say, we need to keep doing this. What can you do to help? Um, so pretty much that's the model that I did. The very first um, performance. What was so interesting, Holly, I'd spent years saying to major promoters, um, you know, such as Simone, who run the the in concert here in Western Australia, yep. which is an iconically Absolutely. beautiful, massive concert in Western Australia down south at a winery, saying I could put an orchestra together if you want one. And she'd be like, great, great. You know, I'll keep you posted. We might need an orchestra. But one day a group of us got together, oh, a horn player, Wendy Tay and Jessica and myself and a couple of others. And um, we just went, let's just call it per symphony. Let's say it exists. We know we've got the musicians. <laughs> I I'd spent that. four, I literally spent four years building the database. So I knew I could do it, but I kept realizing that promoters weren't booking us because it actually wasn't a thing, a tangible thing. So suddenly I started saying, by the way, Per Symphony now exists and this is who we've got playing for us. And our concert master is the esteemed Paul Wright, who's got a big reputation. Suddenly people were like, oh, great. Um, so are you free next February to perform for? <laughs> wow, that's really how it happened. That's amazing. So it's actually quite, you know, remarkable that as soon as you put a name to something, as soon as it becomes tangible, and I was thinking, for God's sake, I could have put this orchestra together three years ago. I just didn't realise it needed a name. So that was quite, a, but I did persuade the university club at the UWA, University of Western Australia, to consider hiring the orchestra for our very first concert for the centenary celebration of the university for all their members. And I put a business case to them as to how they could sell tickets to their members and we would be doing this. And that, look, the concert was a huge success in terms of feedback and attendance and all the rest of it. And we did blow their socks off as I knew we could. Um, and that was basically, I didn't have to take financial risk and I'll be forever indebted to um, Gary Ellis at the university club for taking that leap of faith. And then Simone Horgan from Lewin was at that concert and said, can you come and play for the concert in February? And on it went from there. So um, we were very much started by me being able to put a persuasive case to someone to launch a new orchestra for a centenary. Love that. And I think it's funny, it really resonates with something. We had uh, Dan Flynn from Thank You on the podcast a few weeks ago and he was talking about how critical momentum is is get, in getting people on board. It's one thing to sell the vision, but exactly what you're saying, when you've got momentum, even if it's the we've got a name and there's a few of us that are ready and raring to go, <laughs> it's amazing how much, uh, how, how much it shifts the conversation and the response yes. of people that you're trying to get on board. It moves it from sort of the abstract, hypothetical, oh, yeah, maybe we'll book you one day to, oh, well, you're here and now. So, okay, yeah, let's do this. Absolutely. And you know what? You're never ready. If you're starting a business and you're like, but I need this and that, it's never going to be ready. You know, like we were never going to be ready until we had that concert in the diary to make it ready. So, you know, to a certain degree, you're not lying, but you're definitely saying, I know I can pull an orchestra together. 
and you're just hoping to God it all comes together as you think it can in your head. Um, and, you know, of course you, you can, but there was no way that I could sort of show on paper, this is our track record and blah, 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 and this is what we've got in place. So, um, you know, it is a case of actually sometimes you just have to have complete faith that you know you can deliver something. Well, I was going to ask you about that because on the face of it, that sounds like it, it was a bit of a white-knuckle ride for a few moments there. Like you, you're creating, you're obviously having to bring a group together, you're managing their expectations, but certainly that you've got to get a little bit of excitement and get them invested in something. Uh, and at the same time, you're not sure exactly what that's going to look like or how quickly it's going to happen. Are you someone that's sort of more of a natural risk taker or is there, a, um, I guess, habits or uh, things that you've allowed yourself to do, be it a mindset or a, an attitude that you bring into the situations that helps you uh, take bets like that, you know, back yourself? <laughs> It's just so interesting about the whole risk-taking thing. I always say that I'm the most risk-averse person. You know, like well, I've always been someone who's banked. I'm not to this story. <laughs> bank accounts been in the black do you know what I mean like I I wouldn't say that I'm someone I, I've never bet on the Melbourne Cup Holly so you can tell the kind of person I am but um, having said that if there's something that I know no matter what happens I will still find a way through it so I think the attitude thing for me is what enables me to be perceived as a risk taker that I'm like I absolutely know that no matter what happens on this journey no matter which way I'm going to get to the end result I will make that end result happen I really back myself to go I'm I will just work through the night for how many months and find people to help to solve the problems that I've got to make it happen and I've had to do that so many times with the orchestra just go I really have to make this happen I've you know said it's going to so I guess you know that comes across as being a risk taker but it isn't it's just me going I know I can put the people and things in place no matter what to make it happen if I need to I mean to that point you worked in organizations and as part of sort of as you were saying this incredible um, army of people really that wrapped around bond what were sort of the new experiences and lessons that you learned in starting something from the ground up for the first time oh my goodness me if only there was a manual and you know actually Holly it was really hard even just starting a small business forget that it was an orchestra I really found it incredibly hard to go well I don't know what company structure I need what is a company structure I've always worked in someone else's I've always worked in someone else's company you know why why do I need this you know um so look it was a massive learning curve and you can get lots of advice and you know even filtering through the advice as to how to find a way forward to set up a company and I've since changed massively I set up per symphony as a PTY LTD because that was the fastest thing I could do. I then realized two years down the track that we couldn't receive donations. People who wanted to support us were like, but you're not tax deductible. So then I had this insane shift to a charity, which took a ton of work, board members, legal firms, accounting firms. Oh yeah, that's Um, not an easy process. (laughs) It was not an easy change at all, you know, and taking up time doing admin when all I want to be doing is getting the orchestra more work was, you know, incredibly frustrating. So, you know, some of the lessons were, um, you know, actually, I probably should have got myself a right-hand business mentor from day one that understood small business. Yeah. And look, I had a lot of people that work for major companies helping me. But actually, starting your company is so different from being in a company, being employed by one. Yeah. So that was something, you know, that I, I would go back and do differently. Um I'm sorry that you said that actually as well. Can I just say there? Because that's probably the biggest mistake I made when I started my business too. I had a whole lot of people who'd run businesses, but I didn't have builders in my life. And I needed to really actively go and seek out those builders because it it is really a different skill set. It's a different risk appetite. Yeah. 
uh, all all the nitty gritty of what it takes to um, start, but also to have the buck stop with you in, in that sort of way. I found it to be a really different set of people I needed to advise me through that. Totally, Holly, and I didn't realise that. I went to people that I knew from the corporate world, from my you know my job, who are incredible people. But it, it, there are so many different issues that you face starting out. So yeah, I totally agree. But the other thing was I made assumptions because I've played in an orchestra, and this is what I mean about getting stuck in a, a job role. You know, obviously I've played in symphony orchestras. My job was to practice parts at home, turn up on stage, sit there, and play the goddamn best that I could as part yeah. of this remarkable ensemble. And of course, I thought I knew how orchestras worked. I saw the brochures. I saw the season tickets come out. I saw the auditorium fill up with ushers at the top of the stairs. Of course, I knew what was involved. Oh, my <laughs> goodness me. Hats off to anyone working behind the scenes in the arts oh, industry. I, the pe- yeah, I can bet. You know, the people on the stage... They really, really don't understand. And I literally talk to our musicians now and I'm desperately not patronizing them, but I'm like, guys, I know that you're really, really worried about the angle of your chair right now, but we have bigger <laughs> we have bigger things to fry backstage. And um, you know, it's I think it's helped immeasurably because I totally know what it's like for the orchestra on the stage, but my learning curve, making assumptions about things that I had no idea about. I mean, Holly, the library side, I have never dealt with such a complex um, system of sourcing, cataloging, providing, printing, I say, I don't distributing even know what you're music. About when you're using the word library in this context, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. We can literally have sort of several thousand pieces of paper on stage at any one point that have oh to be God. in the right order for the right instruments on the right stands at the right moment, um, and that takes an army of people. This isn't just a one-person job. <laughs> this is, and I was like, great. I'm really glad that the library side of the orchestra is the most time consuming. I mean, literally my house used to have 76 orchestral folders in a little pathway it literally looked like paving stones going through my house and you'd literally walk along going violin one violin one violin one violin one violin two violin two literally distributing the music on top of those folders and if the wind blew and blew the music back across my house we'd start again oh my gosh (laughs) so look it's the little jobs I made assumptions that some of the challenges were going to be the big jobs they're not it's the little jobs so yeah really interesting journey and in terms of, you know, building that new group of people around you and even your comments around mentoring, I mean, you'd, you'd grown up in the UK, you'd moved out to Perth. A lot of people see that as sort of a network barrier going, okay, well, you're trying to start something in a, a town you're still reasonably new in. How did, I mean, people often put a barrier, I think, between themselves and being able to reach out and ask for that sort of help and support and advice from people. How did you go about that in a, in a practical way? Oh, you know, and look, it has been a challenge, you know, because I can't, I haven't got an old school girls network. I have no family here. It's not like I can say, oh, my neighbors, when I was growing up, you know, their dad now runs this company. He'll know what to do. So, um, you know, I've just been extremely fortunate that a lot of Western Australian people love music. So for me to talk about music and say I want to do something in music has led to me finding a bunch of amazing people that totally believe in what I'm trying to do and have connected me. You know, I mean, it was recently, it was extremely gratifying to go to a business awards dinner that the orchestra were playing at um, and how many people in the room I knew and knew me. And I thought, my goodness me, 17 years ago when I got here, I didn't know a person. And now I know a really good percent of that room. But it's taken, that's what it's taken, Holly, that I've literally had to really 
work so hard. And, you know, one of my rules now is to never leave a meeting without saying to that person, are there three other people you think I should meet with? I love that. And that's, it's, you know, so I literally, and I, you know, I have to say, like, I went to see Michael Cheney, who um, is, you know, just an all round inspiring human being. And he was, you know, really gave me time and really listened and said, Bobby, you know what you're doing. It's, it's really important. And, you know, he was like, now, who can I connect you to? And straight away that afternoon had rung three people. Um, you know, he's so good like that, isn't he? Very generous with his time with the introductions. Goodness me, you know, thank you for doing that. But then those three people then also, and on it went. So actually having one key person that is willing to, you know, you're not asking them for hours of time. You know, I wasn't asking him to sit on the board. I was just asking him, is there some way that he could assist? And his way to assist was to connect. Um, And that's been so fortuitous, so fortuitous. And snaps to you on the hustle. And I don't mean that. I think the hustle sometimes gets misused. I mean that in the genuine sense of pounding the pavement, genuinely building relationships, you know, uh, it takes time and and I think um, sometimes people aren't prepared to put that work in but it's amazing if you're just diligently putting one foot in front of the other building that momentum uh, continuing to share the story connecting with people that believe in what you're doing and are prepared to pay that belief forward it's amazing how quickly things can grow Absolutely. And I also think that sometimes we hold ourselves back because we're like, look, these guys, you know, these people know more than I do, or they're this, or they're this status, or this, they're whatever, they'll never give us time. And I've really learned that don't ask, don't get, you know, has become my mantra, because if I don't, I'm going nowhere. So I've got nothing to lose. But also, they might be incredibly talented and expert in their fields. But guess what, they don't know how to run an orchestra. So I'm like, I've, I've got that confidence that I know my bit. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't feel intimidated. Like, I used to talking to, you know, some incredibly high powered, talented, you know, well positioned people because I, you know, I just kind of go, but this is about the orchestra and I need to talk to you because we've got to succeed. So that itself has just given me a huge amount of confidence to go. I believe in what I'm talking about, that the thing that I'm growing is unique to us. Um, And, you know, that actually don't ask, don't get is going to be our way forward. We can't actually afford to not do that. I love the asking piece. I think it's something that's uh, enormously undervalued, uh, particularly probably by women. And and that is, you know, true. I'm not sort of saying that as a general statement, but certainly evidenced in a lot of studies when we look at just the preparedness to ask and put yourself forward and the like. I think a big part of that stems from the fear of the no and the idea of rejection and dealing with was sort of what feels like a, a closed door in those moments. And I'm sure on the journey they have happened, though obviously you've got an, an enormous amount of yeses on the way. How did you handle the, the no moments? Oh, do you know, it was just when you were saying that, you know, like you almost can feel the feelings. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, and partic- <laughs> particularly in my business where, you know, it is all about passion. So I'm dealing with something that I cannot comprehend why people wouldn't want music and amazing music in their lives and wouldn't want access to it on a more regular basis. So it is, you know, such a blow when someone's literally like, I'm sorry, the symphony is not my thing. And and I'm so frustrated because actually I know that if I could get them sitting on a patch of grass under the moonlight, listening to, you know, a massive theme from Lord of the Rings played by a monstrous symphony orchestra, they would love it. Yeah, they'd give it a go. Um, (laughs) 
and you know, which is what happened in Quinana on Saturday. We literally were playing ACDC, um, stay, you know, stay wow. away to heaven, but be- beautiful orchestral arrangements. And, you know, 5,000 people that would never say the orchestra is their thing are jumping up and down and punching the air. So, you know, I, that, I, it, it's so hard. And I, I find it often, I've really learned in conversations to be, you know what, that's completely fine. But is there any possibility that I could at least show you what you do so you can make up your mind that Perth Symphony isn't your thing as opposed to the symphony? So it's, um, you know, and there have been plenty of other blows and no's along the way. You know, oh, yes, we'll fund you. Oh, no, we won't. Because <laughs> so, I can um, imagine a big know, part of the challenge too is sort of over- overcoming the stereotype, people thinking that they know what a symphony orchestra is. And part of what I think you've done so brilliantly is you've really challenged that stereotype. And, and you know, I was thinking about it when you were talking about the early days of, of Bond and sort of how this whole idea of getting out electric instruments was so different for you from what you'd grown up in uh, your musical training to have experienced and come to know music as. I think probably per symphony orchestra with what you're doing and I think there was an event last year that was sort of Beethoven beer and bratwurst. You know, it's just it's yep. flipping the, <laughs> the notion of what going to uh, a, an orchestral con- a concert looks like. Correct. We, I mean, we, the tagline now is we're the orchestra that breaks the rules. Um, (laughs) And and look, we do, we, we've literally, and I've just sort of said, look, and, and this is where having spent some time in the corporate world, and I'm really glad that I've had the opportunity to work in quite diverse industries because that has given me a, a really broad perspective as to let's try something different. But, you know, I mean, I was literally looking at the contemporary music world going, why is it that the Rolling Stones can play the same 40 songs for 40 years? is and sell tickets for $300. Why is it that a symphony orchestra comes out and plays symphonies that, um, you know, each concert, it's a new symphony every year. God forbid they play the same program as last year, you know. Yeah, true. Um, is there something that we can learn? You know, so it, it's looking at other models to say, what is it that we need to do? And so we regularly will bring out pieces that people will know because that's the Rolling Stones, the familiarity. I love this one. I listen to this at uni. You know, it takes them back to who they are you know, where they come from, that whole connectivity. But then, of course, we'll push the boundaries and put, you know, we played Schnitka in a steampunk Mozart concert. The entire orchestra was dressed in steampunk, industrial <laughs> setting in the middle of railway workshops. You know, we had a steampunk Dalek walking around exterminating everyone. It was absolutely fabulous. And in the middle of that, we'll put a really avant-garde work in the Schnitka um, Mozart a la Haydn. And people came away loving that work more. So, you know, generally I found that when people say the symphony is not my thing, then what they mean is classical concerts aren't Mm. it's the sitting still for two hours staring at a stage listening to something they don't know so I'm like well one day I want to get you there you know my dream is that everyone can sit through a Mahler symphony and get the goosebumps and the waves of emotions that flood over me when I listen to that music but you know we've got to go in looking at other industries and learning as to how could we do this and you know Holly it's working you know steampunk Mozart was a raging success Beethoven beer and breakfast was a raging success yeah you're getting thousands of people at your concerts so it's super exciting but you know it's exactly like you say it's changing the perception that you know music isn't in boxes you don't just like rock and not like classical you can like all music if it's 
presented in a way that people can access it. Do you find you're bringing in a younger audience? Because one of the things I've been involved a bit with some of the theatres here over in the East Coast and the challenge is always this conversation around how do you get the under 35s to come to the arts? How do you get them to buy tickets? How do you get them to show up? All those sorts of things. Um, and and I guess the, the, the conversation that's being had around a lot of arts tables or the ones that have got their finger on the pulse certainly is going how do we make sure as this generation you know rise up and become a larger share of our audience that we've got an offering that entices them in that keeps them supporting the arts that gets them engaged are you finding that really the the way that you're changing up the the delivery is bringing in that younger crowd Totally. I mean, if you were to visit the City of Quinana Facebook page and look at the videos that they took on Saturday night, they did a lot of Facebook Live of the concert. And literally, it's families. Their demographic, actually, their biggest demographic is single people, 24 to 29. So we had to customise the, the concert for that demographic. But, you know, in the middle of playing Uptown Funk, we'll also throw in Nesson Dormer with an astounding young tenor. Um, and yet that's the video that people that people are saying. They, the one song they didn't video was the classical opera aria Nesson Dormer. And yet that's the one where people's going, where is that young singer? Like, where's the video of that? So we absolutely are getting an incredibly younger audience by deliberately playing things that we know that they're going to be able to access an orchestra. When I stood on stage at the start of that concert, looking at a sea of people on such a beautiful evening, right in the heart of the city of Quinana, people have been able to walk to the concert. So that's the first thing. But the second thing was, you know, how many of you have heard, seen an orchestra live? Put your hand up if you've never, ever seen an orchestra live. And every hand went up it was staggering holly staggering so here they are families toddlers you know young blokes in groups you know generally under the age of 40 5000 people all sitting watching us loving it you know that to me is the biggest tick in the box that we're doing the right thing that's exciting and tell me and you touched on it before you've just been over to the US doing a bit of a, a study tour going and looking at how they do it over there um, what what do you think the Australian art sector can learn from the American uh, scene, I guess? Um, there's a completely different philanthropy culture over there. So our arts, our arts organisations kick ass globally. I mean, our major companies, you know, I love going to watch Orchestra Ballet Opera anywhere in Australia. We really have some outstanding and equally can compete with the US. Where we can't compete is the support. And they're able to do things that we can't because they've got money and they've got money not from funding, but from philanthropy. So Dallas Opera has 154 people on its board. Each one of them is paid to be on. And their job is also to recruit other members and bring in other donors. So when you've got an army that big as your development team, I mean, hello, far out. And, you know, of the 35 employees of Dallas Opera that are the administration team, 10 of them are in development as well. So I'm like, this is an army. I mean, this is the most professional outfit for bringing in money I've ever seen. But on the flip side, that culturally is absolutely what happens. And what I've seen is that if a hell of a lot of people give five grand, which isn't a huge amount of money in the greater scheme of things, if they were to give five grand in their lives, if every family went, I'm going to give five grand to the arts in my lifetime, the difference it would make to the places where they live and the opportunities for their children and the vibrancy of the environment in which they operate would be insane. So it's how, you know, I'm looking at ways going, okay, as much as I'd love someone to ring me up and go, here's quarter of a million, because mm. trust me, what I could do with that amount of money would be insane. But actually, I, I really, <laughs> well, you know, but I really feel that actually, if I could somehow find a way to even get 50 people putting in five grand, wow, 
and then I've actually got 50 ambassadors. I haven't just got the money, I've got the people too. And, you know, so it's it's kind of going, what can we take from America? How can we build a culture of giving in Australia that just does not exist here, does not exist? Yep. And I'm interested kind of what you're touching on there. Here's what I could do with a quarter of a million dollars. You know, where to next from a Perth Symphony standpoint? Do you have sort of a, a definition of success or something that you're actively working towards at the minute or is it just continuing to, to build on that journey of getting more people engaged, providing more opportunities, doing more concerts? We, we've basically got sort of three core things that we're working on. One is by 2020 to have performed to 250,000 Western Australians. So, you know, an eighth of the population. Where are you at right now? Oh, I think we're about two, just under 200. Wow. So we're, we're going to smash track. it, Holly. We're, yeah. we're going to smash it, yeah. Um, but the point is in their community. So it's performing to them in their community. So these are people that won't have heard an orchestra before. Um, you know, I've got visions of us being able to play out a Bruce Rock with people coming in on their utes from the farms around, driving for two hours into a big open field, bringing a community of a couple of thousand people together that have literally come from a catchment of four hours, five hours across for a night of amazing music. And I know know we can do that so not going to rest until we've been able to get the orchestra out further than we're currently getting it yeah um the second thing is to completely change people's perception of an orchestra so come and see mozart but come and see it done steampunk you know with daleks and industrial percussion and incredible food and wine so it's to get the people who are in the metropolitan area that think they like hearts but have dismissed classical music to embrace it and then the final thing is just give musicians work that we we had such an exodus holly when i got to perth in 2000 Every time I met a talented young player that I was playing with, you know, at a, an event or function or concert, they were about to board a plane to either the Eastern yeah, States wow. or Europe. Just talent. And they don't come back. Yeah. So I was like, we have to create work. We actually have to create work for these people. So the aim is that we would literally give 60 musicians 0.5 of salary. So round about sort of 40 grand a year from what PSO does to 60 people. And that's hopefully by 2025. But, um, you know, that's a huge jump that we've got to make. Last year, we paid half a million to musicians in salaries they'd never have had if we didn't exist. Wow. So small start, but we're getting there. <laughs> Uh, and that's so exciting too to just think about the career paths that are opening up for you know people. And I'm not just going to say young people because it can be people of all ages to be able to pursue a career in music and be able to make it a mainstay or a solid chunk of what it is they're doing. Because so often you hear those stories about having to straddle you know a job with playing their instrument and being able to perform in the way that they want to. Uh, so it's so exciting to think that you're absolutely changing the game and intent on changing the game on that front. Yeah, and what's so rewarding is some of the posts that were being made after Saturday's concert were from the orchestra members going, I just love playing in PSO. And that to me, because, you know, there's always a tiny bit of me that goes, God, I hope they don't hate me for making them play Metallica and Daft Punk. Um, you know, I promise I promise I'll give you some Beethoven soon. But actually, our, our musicians just want to play and they want to play well and they want to be respected and they want an audience that appreciates it. That's what I'm learning, that actually they are far more open you know, than I could imagine. So there you go. I love your passion. You're an absolute pocket rocket. And I, I must admit, I haven't seen PSO play yet. So that's something I'm going to correct in 2018. <gasps> we I followed the journey out. from afar <laughs> for a long time, uh, but I'm excited to actually come in and see, see it in action. So I'm going to have to pick your most disruptive performance of 2018 and make sure I'm uh, in the West to come and see it. I don't know what you have planned in terms uh, of the mashups for next year, but we can, we can swap notes on that. Uh, absolutely. I, We've got some crazy things planned. So I'll definitely fill you in. 
Brilliant. So I wanted to ask two two questions uh, just before we close. I'm so grateful for the, the time you spent having a conversation with us today. I wanted to know, for those who are thinking out, uh, thinking about starting out on a, um, a career in the arts, what's aspire, I guess, to reach the heights and have done the sorts of things that you've done, be able to perform professionally, uh, be able to you know, really just pursue it to the nth degree of whatever that looks like for them. What's the best advice you would give them to be able to, to set that trajectory up? Are you talking from a performer perspective, like an artist, an actor, a musician? Yeah, I would say let's take it from that angle. Oh, goodness me. I think you've got to be unbelievably resilient, first of all. And I, I, I lecture at Whopper and I say to the young musicians that there are two attributes that I think are critical. And I'll repeat them here, Holly. One is brave, that yeah. you've just got to be brave. You've got to don't ask, don't get. You've got to put yourself out there. You've got to ask, can I come and play in that production? Can I sing that role? Can I be involved in the orchestra you know because otherwise people just don't know about you so you must be brave and then the other thing is if you can be memorable for all the right reasons that just to just be ordinary and quiet and in the shadows in the arts world never gets you out the front so finding a way to be memorable whether it's because you're the best prepared every goddamn rehearsal that you are the most reliable you know that you always respond on time these kind of things they're critical for being success as an artist but at the bottom of it all if you don't have crazy passion you're never going to do this because you do you need to be incredibly self-motivated and to be brave you've got to be passionate so it all stems from you know do you love it enough if you then love it enough then make the decision that you're going to be memorable and brave and then I think um you know you stand the best chance of success and I'm hugely pro please get yourself some business skills yeah yeah that came through (laughs) really strongly understand how to write an invoice if you're going to be a musician you are a sole trader you still have to operate and get your invoices in on time and simple things like that that a lot of crazy And even being able to do the simple with. stuff like ask for the money that you've earned because you did go and do the yeah. playing, you know, doing the follow-up <laughs> and making sure the bills get paid. We literally now, Holly, have to create a purchase order for every musician in the orchestra so that we can actually highlight or see straight away who hasn't invoiced us because they do forget. And I'm like, it's crazy. You're trying to make a living out of this. Yeah, so, yeah. we're having yeah. to chase you to make sure we've paid you. But yeah. I think great advice. I love I love the not, not just the be brave piece but the be memorable for all the right reasons. That That's um, one I'm going to take away, that's for sure. And for those who are listening today, what's, what's the call to action you'd love to leave them with? And I guess in this sense it's to people – listening that may or may not be engaged in a creative pursuit. What's, um, the, yeah, what would you like to encourage them to do? Do you know what? It takes a lot of effort, Holly, on a Thursday night to get out, buy a ticket, get in the car, drive to a car park, etc., and consume art. It is hard and people have families. And I think some of your listeners will be sitting there thinking, God, I have not been to hear anything, even if it's, you know, a ballet opera, forget the, the big arts, you know, like even a, a local pub gig please do it. I have yet to meet anyone that I've said that to and said, please make your New Year's resolution to go to something once a month that's live entertainment because the stimulation, it makes you think differently. You'll go to work with different perspectives. You'll be more connected to the partner that you've taken with you or your family. You know, I just, please make that commitment, make that time because engaging and connecting with the arts is quite fundamental to us as human beings. You know, music is one of the oldest things we've we've got as human beings before we could even read or write, we could sing. So um, do it, make it to any 18 New Year's resolution. 
I love it. I'm making that a 2018 commitment. I, and I did a few years ago, and I haven't been as focused on it this year. I still try and go as regularly as I possibly can. But I can completely agree with what you said. You, the stimulation, the energy, the the way it provokes thinking and experiences and emotions that you wouldn't have otherwise uh, in any way engaged with is just remarkable. And I've, I, the, the way I think it, it it just helps you to see different light and shade and colours in the world uh, is exquisite. And I will definitely be making that commitment. I'll make sure one of them is is a PSO performance too. Yay. And look, Holly, if you would indulge me, because we're not funded and we rely on every single thing that we, you know, we get to come in. There are some people that have just gone over and beyond to help PSO. And if I can just mention Mindaroo Foundation, Tim Roberts Giving and our foundation partner, AHG, because they're the ones that have taken the plunge to come on board. And without them, we, we wouldn't be here. So I just want to do a shout out to the people that really support us. Absolutely. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for the, the passion uh, that you have. And I should say this, so it's not just raw passion. It's the strategic and the commercial way that you've gone about um, making your, your vision and your passion come to life and in doing so creating pathways for scores of young musicians across this country. I'm excited to see where this is going to go. I look forward to watching you smash that 2020 and 2025 target out of the park uh, and I'm so grateful <laughs> to you for being so generous with your time today and, and what you've shared about your own journey. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.